Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Jake Rye, who is a Michigan-based producer and mixing engineer with over 16 years of experience working within the indie and alt-rock genres. He's worked with artists such as The Glorious Sons, Michigander, Brother Elsie, Leyland Blue, and a whole bunch more. And in this chat, we have a great talk all about making mixes that have character, that sound wide, and being very purposeful with the decisions you make throughout the entire process, whether that has to do with your signal chain that you're using or whether you're dealing with stuff like client relationships and you know establishing those relationships, nurturing those, and then creating systems that allow you to get on the same page as the artist you're working with. That way everyone is comfortable and you can ultimately have a great experience that has people coming back to want to work with you. But not only that, but it just creates a stronger friendship overall, which just makes the experience better. You want to work with people who you enjoy being around, especially if you're going to spend so much time working on an album. And you could tell throughout this conversation that Jake is very thoughtful about his approach, and he shares a lot of great tips in this episode that I think you're going to learn a lot from. So with that said, let's just jump right into the interview. Jake Rye, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background and how you got into music and all the cool stuff that you're working on these days, can you give us that story? It's a long one, but yeah, let's let's go for it. Let's do it. Um, yeah, man, I, I started off um, like everyone else, you know, playing in bands in high school that, you know, or, and I was in a jazz ensemble in high school, part of the school, and I've been playing bass since I was like 11, been playing music in my church since I was like 13, so Bass has kind of been my main instrument. I started learning guitar when I was also like 16, 17, because it was hard to write songs from the bass back in like 2000, you know, back in, I guess, 16, 17, that'd have been like the 90s. But, um, you know, and kind of approached it like anyone else, very exploratory, learning, like, what is this all about? And then it became about community. So it's like, hey, let's get in a room with other people and make music. And then from there, you know, um, audio became a thing because I, cu- I couldn't afford studio time. And I had been in several bands and we had made records and stuff. And one of the bands was pretty successful and had about a good five years of touring, sold about 20 CD, 20,000 CDs, not 20 CDs. That'd be funny. It was just 20. <laughs> Huge career, 20 CDs. <laughs> we sold 20 CDs, bro. It's like 200 bucks. That's more than streaming. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I started after that kind of stepping into trying to do recording because um, studio time was like a hundred bucks an hour back then. And um, I just wanted to be able to experiment and take my time and write songs and try sounds and stuff. And so I ended up with like Cakewalk and uh, Interface and uh, just uh, like, uh, I don't even remember what I started with. I guess I ended up, started off with like a free one. There was this company called, uh, I don't even remember what it was. It used to be, it's Antelope Audio now, but it was Aardvark. Okay, yeah, I remember those. Yeah, so a friend of mine had a card, and I had this giant, like, computer, and I had to slot it in, into the, you know, into the computer box, and, like, it was crazy. It had a printer cable to attach because USB wasn't <laughs> a thing yet. So I was, like, working in that and learning and then stepped into, you know, a more, everyone kind of grows. You step into more official uses, so I think Presonus stuff. Came out with they came, came out with the Fire Pod or whatever eight channels 
And uh, yeah, I was working on my apartment. So I was basically started off doing demos, um, had some of those demos, ended up in Nashville with a producer friend of mine, and we made some recordings that were official masters. And we were going to, you know, shop them. And we ended up actually getting some really good feedback um, from from EMI, which is now Capital in Nashville, and started building some relationships there. And they just kind of said, hey, go write a ton of songs. Go back. Your demos are great. Don't pay anybody. Just make your own music. And while you're doing it, why don't you, like, take projects, too, and share those with us? I said, sweet, I'll do that. So um, started doing demos out of my apartment like everyone else is doing now, you know? And uh, that turned into records, and I started subbing studio time out so I could track drums. I don't know, it was 2005, and that turned into me moving into my first studio space three years later, and I had, I was there for three years. It was an above-garage apartment that was like 400 square feet and was making records there, and I got to work on a record while I was there through some relationships in Nashville um, that did really well, and from that record, things kind of grew into my new space that I had for 10 years. And You know, it's just this like process of growth and exploration and meeting new people, and and uh, it was... Uh, was really fun it still is fun i've been doing it for 17 years now so, love that man that's yeah. awesome you must have you must have already had honed in on your skills pretty good then to have a record label say like you know keep don't even bother with the studio just you do it on your own and start taking another project that, that's a lot of trust for for a label and most people most labels wouldn't do that yeah i think um you know mind you i never signed the pub deal that they offered but like because it wasn't good and they told me that, and our guy said hey this is what you're worth right now you know and um but yeah, I think I just kind of knew how to make things sound like my head wanted them to sound. Mm-hmm. Like I figured out I figured out how to turn knobs enough to get things to sound how how I wanted them to and then I had some gain staging knowledge and balancing cuz I did live sound. I was in a band and I had to mix sometimes. So I kind of took that PA live sound background from being a kid and running sound at different venues at church for my band, sometimes the sound guy would would call in sick or like we had a sound guy that toured with us and you know he taught me stuff and I took some of that and then I had a friend that was doing audio school that came over and spent time with me and taught me a little bit more about gain staging in, in the computer and so got that out of the way you know got the basics and understanding compression all that stuff early on so I could actually use it to make sounds and get tone you know I wasn't good I don't think I was that good like I go back and listen to it and I'm like yeah I mean it, you can listen to it it doesn't freak you out. There's not. It's not super distracting. It's not great, but like, um, you know, I think kids, kids, and just anyone really now stepping into the the world of presets is what I call it. You can you can pull something into Logic and it loads a ton of plugins on it, and you automatically have a preset. And some of them sound great. Some of them don't. Some of them are terrible. But like, it gets you started faster, and you don't you don't really have to know as much to kind of get in and start making music and. Um, Back then, it was you kind of had to search for things a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I grew more because of that. I wonder sometimes if I had access to some of the newer stuff, if I would grow faster. Um, but I don't know. You know, it, it was it was a good. It was. I'm really grateful for the timeline I was on. So that was really cool. So yeah, man, that's very cool. And, and I think you kind of touch. It kind of brings up an interesting argument, which is that, you know, you talked about how you were just basically trying to get the sounds you heard in your head to come out of your speakers and you would just mess Mm -hmm. around with it until you made that happen. So it was almost like you were mixing more from the gut rather than focusing on these like technical rules of of audio that I think a lot of people fall into. And and I think that that's such an important thing that 
even even when you are experienced and even when you understand all the gear and you know exactly what you're doing, like you still have to always be going back to that gut mix and and kind of just reacting to your music rather than just getting caught up in what you're supposed to be doing, you know, quote unquote. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think understanding just the very basics of like gain staging and panning and how that influences a mix first. And then you make that your canvas from there. Like that's like the basic thing. If you can understand that first, it makes it easier because then you're not distorting everything. You're not, and it doesn't create as many problems that stack up on the back end. So, and that was something I learned early. And, um, you know, I had a mentor that ran, I do have, I still have a mentor and in other ways now it's more life, but then it was audio, my buddy Pete, and he was tracking ADAT. So you can't make those mistakes, especially when you're doing a mix pass. So he kind of beat that into my head and, in in you know, in a, in a positive way. And he didn't have to say it to me too many times. Like, Hey, you're, this is distorted. Like, Hey, look into this, you know, have you thought about this? And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like I understand how the physics of this works this machine, it's kind of like now I have a canvas to paint on, mm-hmm. right? It's it's digital, so it's blank. There's no sound. It's, you know, it's not like tape where there's a sound that's already pre-EQ'd and that you're running your mix into. But, like, it's, you know, it's this blank canvas, and now you can work from here and paint stuff, you know, make your painting or make your art. And once you understand that, it becomes second nature, and you don't have to think about it. And if you can burn that into your brain quicker, quicker you can understand it, the, the better... And the longer you're going to go faster because you're not, hey, man, this, you know, you send us something to mastering. The mastering guy is not going to be like, dude, I can't do anything with this. It's redlined. Yeah. And some, and there, there is music. There's a lot of music where that's a thing now. And with software have, has having soft clipping and a logic does pro tools does as soft clipping and different things that you can, you know, guys are just like, Hey, this is part of the sound, bro. It's like, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah. I'm a little <laughs> old school. I'm, I might be a boomer. I'm not, I'm a, I'm a millennial, you know, I'll own yeah. that. But like, you know, it just depends on what you're working on. I work on a lot of rock, alt rock, Americana, um, and some alt pop too. And some just, I just did a regular pop mix. It was really cool. And like, but like from where I'm working, that's still those rules and that, you know, the physics and the domain of that all matter. It still matters in these genres, at least that I'm working in, at least from where I'm sitting, it does. Of and some of my buddies. So, um, you know, I know that's different with hip hop and electronic. You're just trying to create as much space for the bass as you can, but you know. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point though, because you know, there is, there, there are some like very foundational things to audio and, and gain staging is definitely one of those and making sure you got a clean signal on the way in. Um, and yeah, there is a time and place for distorting your tracks and saturating them and stuff, but absolutely. But I, but I would argue that most of the people who are doing that these days are doing that in post and they're not, they're not recording their tracks super clipped and redlined yes. and all that stuff. Um, and that was actually one of the things that I was curious to ask you about is that like one thing that really stood out to me when I listened to a lot of your mixes is the way you use saturation. And I think that especially on drums, like I think you do a really good job of giving your tracks enough grit that they have some character to them, but they don't sound like they're, you know, super pinned and, you know, you can't make out make out what's, what's going on there. So um, yeah. I, I was curious to know about your process for adding saturation and like, you know, if you had any tips for dialing in healthy amounts of saturation without going too far. Yeah, I think um, obviously having having a good listening environment so you can actually hear it. That's that's super important. Um, so DAC or yeah, I guess it'd be your DAC and your speakers. But like, so starting there from a listening standpoint of being able to hear it, DAC speakers room. Um, and then two, when you're making those decisions, I mean, choosing your pre's. Like I use pretty dirty preamps. 
when I'm tracking drums for rock stuff. Um, I have these Chandler Little Devils, and um, they have literally a knob that you turn to make things sound more distorted, but not like crunchy, but just like blown out. You know what I mean? So a lot of the sounds that I'm doing are getting I'm getting at the source. Um, Amazing. So yeah, so. Um, I don't have a ton of gear. Like there was a time where I had three racks of gear and, and patch base, and I kind of moved to an inline system, and I just kind of have what I need to get what I want. And if I want different, I'll go to a studio. There's literally a studio 20 miles from here with a 32-channel API console and racks of gear, and it's in a church, big room. It's an old church they converted. Oh, Willis Sound. It's a great room. I can go there. And if I want crazy big room distorted drums and, and 32, cha- you know, eight channels or 12 channels of API to to drive or whatever. But like here I can work and have what I need. So, you know, I use an Apollo. Um, I went from an arm having an RME system to Apollo. I don't know, 2000 and my friends all convinced me, you got to do this. This is real gear. I'm like, ah, it's not, it's not real. Whatever. <laughs> and I got the revision twos. I had two of them and I ended up selling most of my gear after getting those. And then over time, um, I traded those in and got the X-Series, which I have a couple pieces from that. That's when their stuff to me sounded like real gear. Like, that's when I was like, okay, I can't hear as much of a difference between this and, like, my rack of Neve 1073s because I had four of them. So do I need these? How much is this going to matter, you know? And so I kind of got in that process of testing and deciding what to keep kind of over got rid of too many things i had like a revision f1176 i had an opportunity to make a fortune on it so i sold that for way too much money i needed the cash in the bank and you know for some other things and but more or less got to a point where i was like really happy and then then slowly started adding back pieces that i really wanted to kind of solve those problems and i got in more 500 series and so with all that being said, I'm somebody that doesn't like to have too much gear because I like to be able I like to be using my stuff on the regular if it does if it sits for two months I'm probably gonna sell it I'm kind of a wheeler dealer on reverb all the time, but um, I'm really happy with what I have right now and I can get the sounds I want. And um, it's a lot of it's on the front end. I like my rooms. I choose, I've got these ribbon mics. They're not expensive. They're golden age ribbon, the big ones, the, I have the active ones and like for room mics, that's all I use them on. I've got them spaced out pre-wired into my system they kind of have this distortedness to them. It's like not, it's the ribbon, but it's like, you know, it's the sound of those in the room where I have them that gives me that room sound that I like for my room. Um, and it has a little bit of a, like a roundness to it um, and a little bit of distortion. And overheads I like clean, you know, so I'm using these, uh, I was using like an Audio-Technica uh, 4050 stereo, which is their stereo mic. I still have it. Now I'm using United Twin 87s. I'm using those. I used to use, what did I used to use for this? I used to use some other ribbon mics. I kind of just rotate stuff. But these work really well as like a standard space pair or as a Glenn Johns like format. And I really like them. And you can do like the the vintage or modern switch on them. And the the vintage kind of gives you more of a U67 sound. It's a little bit more smooth, which I use a lot. But yeah, I mean, I guess for me, the room matters so much too. Like, if you're if you're in a room and you can figure out the strengths of the room that you're in and you, and and use the ambience to your benefit, that's what you should do. Um, ambience is like really really good thing in helping shape your sound. If you can create a sound that that works for you, that can become a sound that people can recognize. 
that's really good. And I think a lot of rooms you can do that in. Um, the room I was in before, before I moved, uh, was 30 by 18. So it was pretty big. Didn't have high ceilings though. Like the ceilings were only eight feet. It was above my garage. So that was, the, that was the live room. And then the control room was like 15 by 18. So that was pretty small, but more or less, um, I was able to get that room to sound right. And some of the distortion is just the artifacts from the room too. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, but, yeah, sometimes yeah. it's just about being creative and like you know putting mics in weird places in a in a small room and you can get some cool sounds or even stick a mic outside the door kind of thing and sometimes uh-huh. that can give you some grit too. Yeah, I used to do. We had a stairwell that went down to a guest apartment and I used to put a mono mic in there sometimes, depending on how loud the. I mean, if the drummer's just smashing cymbals, then it's kind of a worthless microphone. But if it's like a more chill song, you put that in there and there's a that stairwell talks a little bit. There's a little bit of talking going on and that was. You could tuck that under the snare drum, snare drum on mix, and it sounded really cool. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of using space pair room mics. I got, you know, I'm using that center kit mic that everyone's going to. I just use the SM7. I can distort the snot out of that thing. Um, sometimes I'll just use the API, like the standard strip in uh, UAD, and just drive the input on it really yep. hard. It reacts like gear, kind of. So you just do that. You know, if you want it to spit, you can put... Can, on it and get it to kind of pop, 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 pop with the rhythm a little bit. You get that snappy kick and snare sound. It's kind of cool. But yeah, I mean, it's a blend of clean and distorted sounds and it kind of makes this drum set sound. You know yeah, what I mean? That's very cool. I think it's important to distinguish here. Like, you know, we were just talking earlier about the importance of gain staging and making sure that you're not pinning everything but then yeah. here we're talking about here we're talking about driving preamps which essentially yeah. is pinning but but you're tracking you're driving the input of your your preamps a little harder and then you're pulling back on the output so it yes. comes into pro tools at a decent level that kind of thing. yeah yeah yep that's the way to do it i try to get everything in in minus nine average that way if it goes above on peak it's fine that's what i've worked in my entire career there was some something about that with headroom and digital, and now you can get more headroom than you could with the new Apollo. I don't even know. I think it's 25 instead of 20 you can do. So it's like, oh, I can do more. Uh, do you need to? Uh, not really. So I just stuck with nine, minus nine input, like average. Sometimes um, I'll miss, I'll make a mistake and it'll be minus seven. But like, it really doesn't matter. Like, you know, that much. The key is just, for your, you know, if you want headroom to not have peaks going through your nose. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, but vocals, I record super hot. I record vocals at like minus two peak. I like how that sounds. So I do that. You know, I think drums, because it's just such a splatty, big, wild sound, it's like, you know, having that headroom is nice. But vocals, like right here, you know, so I, I just kind of go a little hotter with that. Yeah, it's funny because I, I feel like there's there's a couple different ways that people approach their mixes and some people will just record everything so that like some people will try to record things so that they their faders always just stay at zero. And so they'll game uh-huh. stage differently just to like like, you know, maybe like you said, where you drive your vocals a little harder because that it's probably going to be louder in the mix. Right. So um, some people will take that approach where other people will just kind of record everything at a certain level and then just who cares where the fader is, is it's, you know, that's just the way it goes. Um, mm-hmm. So it sounds like, it sounds like you're maybe a little bit more on that kind of get the levels sounding good without having to worry about the fader position. Would you, would you say that's accurate? Uh, yeah. I also use makeup gain on buses though a lot and I'll drive a bus sometimes if I like the balance. So if it's really, if my faders are way down on the mix, I'll use the bus to just make up gain if I like it rather than, than just grouping the faders and raising them all. I'll just drive it from the output stage of whatever's 
on my drum bus to the into the mix because like I have I have a outboard bus system that I use still. I I went to full inboard and then went back. I couldn't get the magic I like, so um, I have some gear in the rack that I'm hitting, and I got to make sure that everything is averaging right so that it feels right. There's like a sweet spot. You just find it, you know. Mm. But yeah, all everything's consistent at least. At least if you look at all my templates, you'd be like, oh yeah, he does this every time, and and do it. You get to a certain point. Not it depends on the song, obviously. If it's a pop song, there's some different rules with that. But like, like a rock tune, if you looked at one song from one band and one from the other, it wouldn't sound the same because you know the tracking would be different in some ways. But ultimately, you'd see some consistent patterns in the way I do things. Um, and I think if you do it enough, you naturally start to just do things and don't think about it. You know, what I mean, you, and you realize, oh yeah, I guess I am doing it. it. I'm doing this all at this many lofts, or I'm doing it all. Yeah, I guess it is doing that. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, it's funny because I I, I have a uh, a workshop that I teach about all about making templates, and one of the biggest pushbacks to it is people saying, "Well, like if you're using templates, don't all songs sound the same?" Then, and it's like, no, because every song is different. Like every like the the song itself is different. The musicians are different. The instruments are different. There's so many different factors that go into it, um, and it's more about just having that consistency in your process. So in your case, you know, if you're bringing in the levels at the same level all the time, then your template's going to work in your favor because you're you're telling it what to do the way it's supposed mm-hmm. to be. But if you're just random with everything all the time, like there's there's no workflow. You're you're just figuring it out as you go. Cool. So another thing that stood out to me with your mixes that I thought I wanted to ask you about was um, I think you do an amazing job of making your your track sound really wide. And mm. they're wide, but they sound very clear. And I think that that's something a lot of people struggle with when it comes to their tracks. Like, they may pan things hard left and right, thinking that's as wide as they're going to get it. But then they end up with mixes that sound really muddy, and, and they actually kind of feel smaller than they should. Um, so I'm curious to know, like, when it comes to getting width in your mixes, like, what are some of your techniques for doing that? So center center image, to me, is if you can get center image locked in and you feel like you're whatever's in the center is like really in focus you can you can get a wider mix so like if if the things that you're stoked about in the mix so let's say it's let's say it's a band so it's snare drum kick drum vocal um as your center and you can clear out some of the other things because a lot of guys will like pan rhythm guitars up the middle and i've i've gotten a lot of indie mixes that sound good where you've got these Rhythm guitars, one on one side playing one part that's kind of bright, one that's dark on the left side, and they're not pan wide enough, and so it just sounds like really narrow. Um, so I tend to send certain things out as wide as I can. So typically, rhythm guitars, which this is actually kind of a hard rock trick from like back in two thousands, like Chevelle and those bands, mm-hmm. where everything like was if it was in stereo and it was tracked separately, you know, individually tracked and not just you know, two mics on one cone or whatever. And you could get a better phase relationship because they weren't played at the same time. You can send those out really wide and it makes your mix wide. So I really like that. So like I do that with overheads. Um, they're, you know, they're tracked at the same time. But everything's, when I track it specifically, if I'm producing it, it's everything's in phase. So phase relationship is very important. Your center image is very important. I don't actually put any, I just started doing stereo imaging on my mix this year for the first time ever where I make it a little wider and I'm using it. I have an SSL fusion now. So I'm using that a little bit. And like, if you go maybe like one and a half, I guess it's not really DB. It's one and a half. It says plus 1.5 plus two. Uh, If you go there, like you get a little bit wider image and it doesn't smear the center. 
Um, so I've always really focused hard on getting my center, center image really clean. And so if you can do that, then that's the basis for making things wide. So that's my approach. Um, a lot of mastering guys have said, wow, your center is really good, um, uh, really clear. And I think a lot of what we do, because we have, you know, we're, if we're not in Atmos, right, we're just in stereo, mm-hmm. is trickery in the sense of getting the mind to relax enough to listen. And if you can if you can do that right, you can actually start to get things not just wider, but you can start and make them feel tall. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like with you can almost like reverbs or clouds and they're floating above your head. You can almost get into that binaural space without actually mixing in that environment. And there, I've been able to achieve that on some stuff. Some stuff I can't. It just really depends on the song. But like I hear things very visually, and um, I don't have any kind of uh, what's that one one thing where you see you start to see colors. Synesthesia is, it, is that what synesthesia? Yeah, one of my friends who's a mastering guy, he's really good. He, he has that. He, he says he can tell if a mix is good because he starts seeing rainbows. <laughs> so, um, and uh, for me, though, I can visually picture things if I close my eyes. And um, and I think if I can take a mix to where I feel it that way, then someone else will too. And, and there's an emotion that comes from that. Um, I was just mixing a song for another artist. Um, it was It was a fight to get this right. It was like, 200 tracks and I had to get it down to like 70 so I could mix it and had to make some decisions and have some conversations about parts. And, you know, you get into that where there's like 20 synth sounds all in the same octave and you're like, okay, what are we going to choose here? And we got that mix to have this crazy center image where it felt like the kick drum was just the roundest, most perfect thing. Like, and it, once we got the kick drum and the vocal relationship and the bass relationship really working together, the snare didn't even matter. He brought the snare in, but it was just like it was there, but like it didn't matter to the energy of the song as much. And we were able to kind of build around that. And it took, it was one of those mixes where it took a week to do and um, lots of revisions. And we got it and it, and everyone was super stoked. And, um, uh, but that one has some of that element, you know, and, you know, it's like, especially for me being someone that's tracked for so long, I've been tracking for a long time mixing for other people sometimes you get it to where you know you you can get in that spot where you can really get it and other times you can't because maybe the tracking and just doesn't line up with you're you're fixing things or there's stuff that's out of phase or it just wasn't done well enough or maybe their vision was completely different and you get it and you're like oh i'm not sure i hear it the way that they wanted it to and and sometimes you're just not the match sometimes you're not the guy to do it and but other times you you know you kind of align yourself and you can get it there and mm-hmm. um, but yeah, does that cool. answer your question? I, I think so. I, I think that there's like, you know, I, I agree with you. I think the the center channel is obviously super important because when people are focused on that, then everything else around it is just it's it's that extra padding and that atmosphere that width the, that you get right. Um, but I think that there's also a lot of people that, you know, I I see a lot of people do like the LCR technique and they'll they'll pan things hard left and right. But that that in itself isn't always enough because sometimes oh you know what I left something out. So yeah, go for it. So mid-side compression. Um, if you if you really want um, it to kind of move a little bit more organically, so you don't have stuff poking out as much, like I like to use, and I'll give you guys the plug-in, But if you use um, it's the Waves uh, EMI mastering desk, you familiar with that one? Yep. The t- is it the TG mastering desk? Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah, I can never I've, remember those those EMI ones, but yeah. 
I started doing this a couple years ago, and now I think with the update, that plugin sounds better than it's ever sounded. Like it, it sounded good, but now I'm like, okay, this plugin actually they've improved it with whatever update they did. I know they updated a lot of their plugins, and they sound better. Waves always to me sounded like embossed sound. It didn't sound real. It sounded like I'm going to layer this over top of whatever you have. Now I feel like okay, it's becoming more. There's more to it. It almost feels more like electric or alive. So if you go across that channel to the, there's a compressor limiter and you set it to mid side and then you just back that percentage off to like 30 to 40%, it, it, it will take that, that width and it, it does something to it that just harmonically is very pleasing. And it does feel a little bit more energy on the sides. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. That, that it doesn't that boost help, yeah. the volume at all. It doesn't boost the volume, but the energy is good. So I do that um, before I go out to the gear sometimes. Um, and then other times I don't do it. It just depends on the song. You can try it. Um, if it works for you, glad I could help you. If it doesn't, you're like, that's stupid. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry for hurting your feelings. So, um, but yeah, I think, what else do I do? I guess, what else do I do for width? I, I have a, well, so I started using, I've always used an ADC to capture mixes cause I used to sum and I was summing, I had uh, 16 channels of summing for years and I had when people started asking for recalls like crazy like hey this is going to go 12 revisions which when you start working with clients that are signed to labels you start getting radio teams management and everyone chiming in on the mix and they want all the notes heard so even if it's one person delivering the notes you're still getting notes from all these people and then you end up doing 10 to 12 rounds of notes that's normal normalize that the higher your clientele gets in, in, in their journey as musicians or the more notes you're going to get and you charge more. So that's just how that works. But um, I started getting so many asks for multi-tracks and all this stuff. And so I was, I abandoned summing and it really, the magic to me was in the ADC. And I had this custom ADC made by black line audio and they used to do the Sparrow and they made a limited edition one where they made like 15 of them. And I bought one of them and I used that for a long time. And that was a big part of my sound, but that thing just coming in off of the, the gear was wider sounding. And that was a huge part of my sound for years. Um, and then recently I updated to the uh, Crane Song Interstellar ADC and it does the same thing, but better. So um, I tried the dangerous stuff. I liked it, but it just didn't sound that much better than the Apollo coming back in. So I ended up going on a journey to find the the next thing. And um, Crane Song the crane song thing does does it right to me, and I think I can have it and work on it for ten years. So I'm I'm happy. I'm going to keep it. Um, those upgrades are not fun. They're expensive and they're stressful to to figure out if they're really making that much of a difference. And you, well, you start asking yourself, like, does it really matter? I mean, like, is, isn't this good enough? And I think a lot of people, to them, it's good enough to just use their their main processing system. Like, I have an Apollo system. I use more as a console for routing. I don't really listen through it, and I don't captured through it i captured through two different i listened through a solaris deck which is by crane song and i captured through an interstellar and i was doing that before with the sparrow stuff um i don't tell, tell a lot of people about this but back in 2012 2011 i did like a small internship with tom lord lg oh wow and he was um it was it was just like a couple weeks you know but basically he had he was mixing a whole record i had a budget record with a label out of chicago and they wanted him to mix it and so i flew down there and I ended up hanging out with him every day in the studio and he just kept, he's like, Hey, you want to stick around on mixing blink One Eighty Two? Yeah, I'll stick around. And I got to sit in with him and then he had me by, by the end of it, I was moving subgroups and patching for him and stuff. And 
Amazing. It was really fun, and he was really kind and generous to me, but I started noticing how he was capturing off his console and what they were using. And um, I was friends with JD, who used to be one of the owners of Black Lion. He actually sold out his shares. He's not with them anymore, but um, that's a whole other story. But JD, I got JD to send him a DAC uh, for capturing, or on ADC for capturing their new one. And he loved it. He flipped out. He quit using his Pro Tools rig for it. He started using that mm. for years. Um, and um, that's when I was like, oh, I need to start doing this. Why am I just capturing it back in through my RME? This is dumb. I need to be upgrading that system. And I did, and it made a huge difference for me. So sometimes people are like, should we spend the money on that? Should we not? I think if you do 100 songs a year mixing, you should do it. That's what I think. I think if you're not full-time, wait. But once you get to a point where you're doing enough music to make a living— if you can find any piece of gear that'll give you a little bit of an edge and help you communicate as a mixer better and, and it helps you, it's worth the money. Yeah. Um, so that's my opinion. So do you kind of just like visualize your signal chain there? You're yeah. using your, your ADC that's got your, you know, all your mics and everything you're going in through that. And then you're feeding that through your Apollo into Pro Tools. So, is that, so I'll, we'll do, I have two different rigs, one's tracking and one mixing. I actually, visually separated. I'm like, if you're sitting here, there's a rack that's for tracking. There's my desk has all my mixing gear in it. And that way my brain is focused on what I'm doing in front of me. Um, gotcha. I have severe ADHD. So if I can get it, if I can get the, the right lighting in here and sit down and this stuff's in front of me and I'm doing this job way easier for me to focus. But, um, I have a tracking rack that I use that, I'm, that I use the Apollo exclusively for the only thing I'm using that's outboard. That's not, um, going into the Apollo is the crane song for listening. I'm I'm monitoring off of that with my headphones or with my speakers, but all the tracking, everything I track captures in the Apollo, uh, one of the Apollos. I've got an X4 and an XAP, um, and they're bridged with a satellite. And then when I'm mixing, um, my my mix bus, I'm not doing summing, so I'm not sending any other groups out. It's just my mix bus. It's going out through a couple plugins that I have. Like I use a, um, I'll do a little bit of deductive like dynamic EQ with it. EQP3 or not EQP3, what is it? The uh, Fab Filter. The Pro Q3? Pro Q3. Yeah. And I'll use that, taking some things, just controlling some low end and high end and mids going out into, um, and then I have, usually I'll have like a wave, I have the wave summing. I like that. I use the SSL one or the EMI one, or I guess it'd be uh, Abbey Road or whatever. And then um, I'll go out of that stuff into the gear. Sometimes I'll do the mid-side thing with a slow percentage before I hit the gear and I go into a, I have an IGS stereo Pultec, which is a solid state. Um, sounds insane. And I was really doubtful of it. And then I got it and I saw it, it has huge transformers in it. I was like, oh, interesting. And they're, and they're, um, they're Carnhills, man. They're legit. That'll do something for sure. <laughs> yeah. And so you flip, just flipping it on, you hear there's something going on. And it's, it, it actually raises the, there's a little tiny bump in the volume in the low end. Just flipping it on, and I don't. It's not really an EQ thing as much as it's just the transformers coming on, and um, it's stereo. There's no tubes. You don't have to worry about phase relationship left to right with two, one of the tubes going bad. You know, it doesn't need as much servicing, and it's all detented, so you can recall it easy. So I go into that, and then I have their. Um, they have an S type. IGS has an S type bus compressor, which I was using the. Um, was using a, a manly numu. You guys remember? You familiar mm-hmm, yeah. with those? Yeah. Tubes. Those things eat tubes. I was replacing the tubes like every four months, and they're like three hundred dollars per round of tubes. It was just, and I, I was like, "What's up with this?" And they're like, "This is normal," and I'm like, "I don't think it is." <laughs> so I ended up selling that, and I moved to this, and this is great. It does 
everything that any SSL bus compressor I've used, the side chain on it's good. All of the like, you know, the attack release settings that everyone ever talks about with SSL, it does those things. And it has a little bit more dirt to it than a normal SSL, which is which I like. So if I don't want as much dirt, I'll just there's a wet dry mix. I'll just back it off a little bit. Um, so I hit those. So EQ into compression because it's warmer to me than going EQ after. And then I go into a 542 tape, little tape modules from Neve. Um, those I have two of those, and I, they're calibrated together. I bought them, and had, they made sure that they were the same. They sounded the same coming out. And um, I use those, and I kind of mess with the textures depending on the song, you know. Um, there's one setting I really like, and um, I use that a lot and then kind of base my structure of that it's it's very subtle it does a little bit to the mid sometimes the low end depending on the song and um then from there i go into a fusion ssl fusion um, which i just got and i'm learning it still i found this setting that works for my tendencies i really like um, and i think it's improved some of the overall clarity and just depth of my mixes um so i've been using that um i got a really kind of a weird scenario with it Uh, somebody i know works for john legend studio and they were selling some gear and this was one of his units and it it has the um first 50 units they made have this little easter egg on the high high frequency compressor when you do the bypass i wish i could show you a picture of it but i'll send you one maybe um it says in in and then nigh which is just in upside down right and then in and that all the other ones, it just says in, 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 and all the modules. <laughs> you, you know, if it's if it's amber, it means it's engaged. If it's white, it means it's not. The nine one, if you hold it down for five seconds, it flips and turns that into a um, a G bus compressor. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's like the one that's in the X desk or whatever. It's not yeah. like the real, but it does yeah. that. And some guys really like it. Um, I tried it out. It's cool. Um, it's not. It's too much to to me to use it. I'd rather just I use the high frequency compression a little tiny bit, and it actually sweetens symbols and sibilance and stuff. But yeah, I like it. I think it's worthy. I was able to buy one for. I was able to get this for fourteen hundred bucks because they're like twenty seven hundred now, and just because it was like a friend deal. That's um, very cool. And and there's a little bit of scratching scratches on the faceplate and stuff, and there and it got some character. <laughs> well, and there was also. I cleaned it when I got it. The faceplate literally looked like someone was smoking marijuana by it 24-7. <laughs> so, like, I had to, like, clean it. It was, like, black. I had, like, a rag and was cleaning this thing. So, but I, it sounds great. So, I guess that's the only reason to own it, right? Awesome. Yeah, so that kind of makes sense. And, like, it sounds like you are still incorporating a lot of analog gear into your signal chain to to really yep. get this this kind of wide sound that has the character um, until it's not necessary. And when it's not necessary, I'll get rid of all of it. I'm not sentimental. Yeah. So what well, sounds like, it sounds like you, you swap your gear all the time. So, you know, yeah, yeah. you're not, uh, you're not like tethered to, to a specific piece of equipment or anything like that. So that, that's great. Um, but, but one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, again, going back to that conversation of width and when you pan things hard left and right, mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. like, I feel like one when I listen to your tracks, I can really hear everything on the hard left and right very clearly. Like every instrument has a very clear spot in that in, on the left and right. Um, and so I'm curious to know, like when it comes to getting that clarity on on those uh, far channels, are you doing anything like are you like mixing in mono to start and then spreading things out? Or like, you know, like do you do any tricks like that to, to get that clarity? I check mono like I don't really mix in mono at all. 
I check it. Um, if the speaker's telling me it's on the left and it feels like it's in phase and it is, like I hear phase, my head feels like it's turning inside out if something's out of phase. Like it freaks me out. I'm really <laughs> sensitive to it. And I hear it all the time. I'll hear it on records that I'm listening to. I'll hear it at live shows. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I can't listen to this. Like it physically hurts me. So phase is really important. And I think if you can rec- learn to recognize it, um, automatically your stuff gets better immediately. Um, and then from there, I do I do deductive EQ like and um, I'll soften things. I'll soften the top end of certain things to make them sit back, and I'll you know I'll brighten some some stuff up in the mids to make it come forward. And um, but like if you sat down and looked at my template right now, you would see stuff pan hard right and left. See a little bit of deductive EQ on low end spots or build up you know where energy is, and sometimes um, you know I'll use fab filter. Uh, EQ on on the buses to just find where there's some buildup, you know, and do a little dynamic on that to clean it up. But that's overall groups, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also really sensitive to the octaves of where stuff belongs. Like if you look at piano and you're like, okay, piano's 88 keys and and it's supposedly you know 30 hertz to whatever on the top end, which is it's like 18 or something. I don't, people say 2020, but it's not really. But if you go. Um, and think about where your instruments sit. And this is like kind of a basic, like if you go to audio school, they'll teach you this. My, I have a piano teacher friend that showed me this. And it's like the layout of where all the instruments are supposed to fit in that octave. And taking care of your octaves and making sure that all of the the energy and the EQ and resonance is in the right spot for those octaves um, really helps too with this. And like if something is in the guitar octave, you know, the octave of the guitar, um, and there's nothing else interfering with that. You can pan it and it'll stick out and you'll hear it. You'll hear that clarity. Um, if you, if you're taking these huge giant synthesizers and you're putting them in the same octave as the guitars, you're going to, they're going to fight with each other. If you can move those down an octave, if it's not a lead part, all of a sudden your guitars have a space in your mix. They didn't have previously. And when you pan stuff, it gets super wide. So, and the other thing with synths, if you don't try to make them, if you can choose when you're, especially when you're engineering, what stuff is going to be wide from the beginning and what stuff isn't like, it, like if you're like, Hey, I'm going to play this Moog bass with the bass guitar. Well, automatically it's two channels unless you're in mono mode, which the, like the old ones, like the sub fatty stereo with the older Moogs are, um, they're mono and you want a little bit of like chorus sound. So it makes it wider. Just don't go too wide with it. You start going too wide. I mean, you're just, it's just twice as loud. Right. And it's, and then it starts interfering with other stuff. So you have to kind of know in your head when you're tracking stuff, how wide things are. I think there's a trend right now and it's, it's been here a while to track everything in stereo, everything's super, you know, and then all of a sudden everything's wide and then nothing's, nothing matters anymore. It's like everything mm-hmm. just washes over top of each other. But if you can choose your stereo elements and then choose your mono elements, and then instead of making like a lead guitar part stereo, you put, you put it partial way to the left and then you, you sub it to a, to an aux and then you put a reverb that you like on that and you pan that to the right and instead of making them equal pan the reverb all the way to the right you're it'll make that left side come so come forward even more clear because you've got this darker thing on the right side that's kind of telling you that hey this information's over here is i'm hearing both but like this is right here my brain's telling me to listen to this so and i kind of stick with that rule of thirds too. Like it's not really a rule, but it's like an understanding your brain processes three things at one time when you're listening. So your brain really can only focus on three things. If you're extra special, you might get five or six, but most listeners, they want to hear 
the vocal and then everything else. So and I say most, I mean, people listen to commercial music, you know, people that don't, that aren't audiophiles, you know, like my wife, for instance, she, she knows what she likes, but she, she can't tell you what she doesn't like. She just doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. So ultimately being able to kind of be a listener when you're mixing too, like what's going to be exciting, what's not, you know, using light and dark to kind of work together, even on the same sections. Um, I know that uh, the nationals really good at this with guitars where they'll do one rhythm <clears throat> that's dark and one that's bright. Sometimes the one rhythm is just a room mic, maybe like kind of aimed away from the mic in a corner or, but they'll use both in the mix and one, and one of they're both going, but you only notice the one really when you're listening. The other one's kind of there to kind of add weight. So, yeah, you kind of you kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier, like talking about uh, even double tracking your guitars. Like, do you mm-hmm. find that you'll when you double track guitars, you'll usually make one side a little bit brighter, or a little bit darker? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. If if well, most of the time, it's not something I do all the time. Sometimes I'll track one rhythm guitar and then one lead, and that's it. But like. I'm not somebody that likes to build a hundred tracks deep. I like to go, I like to keep it to 50 between 70 to 50 or less if I can, depending on the song. Um, so with that in mind, um, yeah, a lot of times I will do a a lighter, darker. Maybe we have two amps going. I will never put two mics on the same cone. Some guys love to do that. I, there's still phase going on. I'm still hearing things, especially like you use a ribbon mic and it's figure eight. You're getting backside splash off a wall somewhere. There's something going on that freaks my brain out. So for me, I will only use solitary mics. I, um, so if I have two guitar, guitar amps going and then they're not in completely separate rooms across from each other or the phase relationships, perfect. Um, I will just use one mic and make that sound the sound and then I'll do it again. Let's record another one. Let's do the same pass. And then we'll, we'll either darken it or we'll use a different amplifier. Um, if you're using a Fender amp, and it's really kind of chimey. Sometimes it's kind of fun to use like a Marshall circuit or a matchless circuit that's a little darker and mm-hmm. two together work nice. And I love that. But I think, I think that piano trick that you mentioned is really important and it ties into what we're talking about here with the, the brighter tracks and the darker tracks is yeah, really, yeah. it's really, it's all just, it's just about being, having a map of where things are going to sit in your mix while you're tracking so that you're, you're making sure that you've created that space for everything and you, that everything has a place to sit. And, um, yeah, I, I agree. I think the piano thing is so, is so key and that's something so many people forget about. And it's like, if you just cram all of your instruments in the same frequency range. Of course, you're never going to get clarity. It's like sometimes things new, new, do need to be a little bit higher in the octave and, and then, yeah, that's instantly going to give you that clarity. So, you know, just being really aware of all that stuff and then, you know, if you're vocal, you know, you have to being you have to be aware of the vocal and how that sits in the mix and then, you know, getting your tones around that as well. Like mm-hmm. there's there's so many th- things. Yeah. I mean, if you have a bright if you have a darker voice and you have a bright, bright snare drum, that's gonna cause problems for the vocal. You know what I mean? Like so thinking about those relationships too, like um I work with a lot of bands and I know a lot of people are doing their own music and it's there's this trend now and it's it's a great trend. It's beautiful that people are empowered to work by themselves. But I work with a lot of people, a lot of groups where there's four to five people with input on everything. And you also, as you get to know bands, you start to pick out and understand what people are good at and what they're not in the room. So mm-hmm. being able to put those guys and in, 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 those people in place, um, I'm thinking of one band in particular that I was just actually talking to today. They're called, it's a crazy name. They're called the Hacky Turtles. Okay. Silly name. They have a lot of Spotify streams. Um and they have a good following. I think they're at for an indie band that doesn't tour. They're I think they're at thirty four thousand monthly listeners right now, which compared to Taylor Swift is nothing. But for a band that's really 
just releasing music on Spotify and playing a handful of shows a year. They're doing really well. They have kind of this Kings of Leon vibe. Um, a little bit of like Rainbow Kitten Surprise. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of them or not. So it's, they're in that world. And I learned after two songs, I had to learn quick. What are the guys, what are the guys in that group? What are they, what are they best at? And I had to learn their tendencies. What do they like to write their parts? And like, it's consistent enough where I was able to figure out how to put them in a place to succeed, but also balance how I was going to tune the drum kit. How I was going to, what, like, what other sounds are we going to add outside of it? Cause my, and I'll give you a little insight on my process here. And I'll make it real quick, but basically the band sends me a song. Some bands do huge demos where there's tons of stuff and they want all of it considered. <laughs> Some bands do next to no demos, all right? These guys fall in the middle. And so they really want to know what they're playing before they come in the studio. It's really important to them that we have their parts they have their parts written and those are the parts are on the record. So we have these conversations beforehand. And they come in and like I have a setup specifically that I use for them that's different than anyone else I work with. Um and the drummer wants to use my 70s Ludwig Vistlight kit. He's obsessed with it. He loves it. It's a great kit. It's on a lot of records that I've done. But we use that. And then, you know, I know how to tune the snare drum for Mark, the singer's voice, and that relationship. And I can I have a nice window of like of octaves I can work within. So I can do a lot of different things. Um, but like I think what I like to do first is go after all of the like it's kind of like building a house. I go after the bones of what's what the songs are gonna be. And we get and we work fast and aggressively, and we get those done. We we don't take a lot of downtime. I don't have a lot of setup time because everything's set up ahead of time. I have it all patched, ready to go. I even have the preamps loaded and gains pre-roughed. Everything's ready to go for these guys. And we go to work. Drums, typically, if we're working off a demo as like a rough, or if we're tracking guitars, um, sometimes we'll have the bass and guitarist just di just playing along for the first take. If we need to make a scratch, then we do the drums. Um, drums are going and then we'll overdub through some sections and then punch through fills that he wants to redo, all that kind of stuff. We'll get that comp figured out. That goes to editing, that goes emailed out. And I usually have somebody reserved like on the spot within an hour of us tracking it. So it gets edited right away. I get those edits back in and then we're back, we're back to base. We move through it from there. Guitars. And once we get all of the things that they knew they wanted in the recording there, and we've kind of wrestled with the parts and the performances. Then we then we have creative time, which is like we're not in that mode of like hustle, and like, and the reason I say it's a hustle, I guess I should say it's instinctive. It's instinctive tracking. We're going off our gut the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like everything's about the gut feeling, gut feeling, gut feeling. And then we stop and then we analyze. Once we get through that stuff, it's like, okay, is everyone happy with this? Do we need to make some changes? Do you want to reoverdub this guitar part? Hey, should we add some synths? Let's talk about what the song needs from here, and then we go through this discussion and kind of work through and we make a plan for what we're going to do the rest of the day. Sometimes if it's a 12 hour day, um, and we'll go in and we'll do that. And then we do vocals the next day. And it's kind of like, it's this process of speeding up and slowing down and like letting the brain do what it does best in those moments, mm-hmm. giving the brain separation. Like when you're being really creative, you don't want to work fast. You want to explore when you're, when you're working towards getting the things down that everyone knows they want to do. You don't have to, you know, have that part of your brain. You don't have to stop in the middle of drums and then have a, you know, a theology lesson. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's like, we've had those conversations. You guys have already been doing that. You've been in the room. We've had the pre-production conversation. You're prepared for this. So that's kind of my process. And it's allowed me to really get the best out of people and put people in a place to do what they do best. 
and it gives me the ability to kind of plan for, you know, what things are going to be like, okay, nobody told me you guys want to add a whole string orchestra. So we're going to have to find someone to sub that out. Well, we, we already talked about that. So we already have somebody mm-hmm. lined up, you know what I mean? There's, and I work with enough people in my projects or I have enough projects going at a time that I have to kind of maintain a schedule. I can't let stuff lag. I can't, if, if I track something in March, I'm going to mix it in March as long as it's early enough. Like I, I have the dates set and if it's got to go to mix, let's say a, a mixer that needs to go to one of my guys that I like to use. We already have it booked and scheduled and everything's already lined up and I know how to deliver the files to that person. Everything's kind of pre-planned. So I spend a lot of time on the front end kind of putting out the fires before the fires hit, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. And then that just, that just creates for, uh, creates a better experience for everyone involved and, you know, they get their creative energy out. You get what you need. Every, it just, it seems to just make a lot more sense to do it that way for sure. Yeah. And I think, if everyone aligns under that and they can trust each other, it's like you get to, there's just, you end up with something that's really special. Mm-hmm. And um, there's not that friction of like the process is removed. It's like you see people, they come here and when we're working together, this is their like, this is, this is their fun time. You know what I mean? Of course. Like, yeah. This is like for some of these guys, it's they're professionals and they're touring and it's, they're on the road. And then they, like I had a band stop off the road and work for a couple of days and you know, bus bus parked in the front. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but like you get to a point where it's like, you know, for those guys coming in here, this is a time to rest as well as work because mm-hmm. they've been on these crazy schedules and from their tour or whatever. So like, you, just honoring that space for them and making sure that everything there's no friction in that in the process in a way you know, it's friction that doesn't need to be. There's friction. Friction is a good thing. Like it creates, mm-hmm. it can yield results, but also creating the right kind of friction and taking out the stuff that needs doesn't need to be there. Like, hey, I'm going to sit here and try guitar amps for three hours while you guys chill on the couch. That's not a good yeah. use of space. But of I've seen that play out in studio so many times. It's like, bro, we don't need to hear all the guitar amps. This is the sound <laughs> that's in your head. Yeah, half the time these guys already know exactly what they want. So just, just, just let them go with it, right? Yeah, let's do that thing. We don't need to try all the amps. Let's just, we know it's the, the, the deluxe reverb. We know it's the tube screamer and we know it's this spring reverb yeah let's just load those up and let's do it you know and then we'll we'll move the mic around we want to brighten it up we want to darken it oh you want two of them cool well do you want it to be a room mic or do you want it to be tight oh we want it tighter okay cool we'll just overdub it yeah yeah so anyway sorry i'm I'm going on it's all good i think that all makes a lot of sense you know it it really does help from an efficiency standpoint for you but also just from creating that environment that's safe for the artist to feel comfortable and and they can be creative and um yeah i think i think that 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 creating that kind of environment is really important because that's what keeps people coming back if they if they feel comfortable working with you if they enjoy that they're going to keep coming back and i know that that's something the the idea of building relationships with your with your artists is really important to you and so i i'm curious to dive a little bit into that and just talk about yeah. you know your process for building relationships with people um and i know before we started we were talking about how you know a lot of people tend to view their view the artists that they work with as clients or whatever. And it's like, it's, it's all a transactional money-based thing, but I know for you, that's, that's not the case. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I really believe that there's probably not a person on this earth. I couldn't find common ground with and couldn't, and could hang out with and have a drink with. So I have to be an open person. If someone reaches out to me and says, Hey, I want to hire you to work on my art. I'm going to pay you a lot of money to do it. 
and I saved my money up and I worked super hard, you know, in my job selling coffee or teaching guitar lessons or touring or whatever it is. And I'm going to pay you thousands of dollars to work on this song or these songs. That's a big reach. That's like, that's an opportunity to really earn the trust that they're giving you. And there's a human aspect to that. That's like, yeah, let's hang out. You know what I mean? Let's talk on the phone. Let's get to know each other a little bit, you know? And like, it's like, in in some ways it's, how can I describe this without over, overthinking it? It's, it's, it's a, it's a type, it's kind of like you have to be open to just new, new friendships with people. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? We just kind of went through a time for the past two years where, you know, we were shut in our houses or we were, everyone was afraid of being sick and it kind of, we kind of went through a time of people not trusting each other as much or like, I don't like, I remember going to family events and somebody's, somebody's, are you, are you guys sick? Cause I don't want to be, we've been kind of distancing ourselves and that does something mentally. You start creating these routines. And I think getting back to this point of like, let's let people in and then let's take care of them. What do they need? You know what I mean? And like, do they need, Great recordings, yeah, but they need to be like accepted and taken care of and joked around with and having fun and like also being serious at the same like that's what people need. It's like love. It's just love is all it is, you know what I mean? And so like I think if someone's willing to save all their money and then call me and say, Hey, I want you to to work on music, um they're they deserve my friendship too, to a certain degree. You know what I mean? I can't be like on my phone with them every five seconds doing texting and but like it's like i have to give them myself too you know what i mean so mm-hmm. i've worked in the past with a lot of guys a lot of engineers that were very like their job is the engineer they don't they don't get in a room with you and have fun and like they sit in the chair the whole time and i guess if that's what the, the artist needs that's what you do but I feel like we're in a time now where that the whole studio mentality and what a studio is has changed so much from what it was even 20 years ago that it's like, be just be kind, be good, solve the problems, do it with a smile on your face. If you encounter troubles, attack the problem together. Don't attack each other. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. like, in all reality too, like I, I just had, I feel like every 15 to 20 mixes, I get one where I don't get it, where it's not the one I just was not the guy for it. And I think with mixing specifically recognizing that on the front end saying, you know, I'm really struggling with this and our visions together aren't aligning. And cause in my head, this sounds amazing. And in my car, it sounds amazing. And on my speakers, but the vision was wrong. Mm-hmm. The vocals are too much this, or it's too polished or it's this. And they wanted it really dark or, you know, and you get to a point where you can't communicate it well enough where you can solve the problem and be the guy you have to say, okay, Hey, not a big deal this happens here's a list of some people you could call if you want this i'm going to give you a partial refund i did do a ton of work you take a loss on the chin but you'd be kind through the whole process and i've I've had a history of not being that guy where I, i've in the past like if i was really busy i'd be like what the well what do you mean what do you mean you don't like it like what are you, what are you talking about this is awesome and i think being able to kind of resist that urge to be offended because it's not your it's not your art in the first place and you're the music you're the janitor my buddy doug always says I'm a janitor. I'm a music janitor. You're you're like cleaning it up, you know? And like being able to serve people with that pride kind of put aside is is really important. And it's part of that overall arching vision of just being somebody that that handles things well, takes care of people, and also communicates like not ghosting and being available to communicate with, you know, and also setting boundaries for that. Hey, I'm available between nine to five. 
anything you want to talk about, let's set up a time to do it. You know what I mean? After that, I'm not free. Like for me this year, I started not working weekends very often. Um, I might do two or three times a year where, I, where I'll produce something, but I won't mix on the weekends. I have a son and a wife and I have a dog and they need me and we love hanging out. And if I don't take that time, I will burn out. So I, I've recognized my, my limitations and what people in my life need. So set up healthy boundaries. And so, yeah, I mean, to answer fully answer your question, my overarching kind of, you know, theology behind how I do this is really just take care of people, meet their needs in all ways I can. So if they're here, it's going to be H, the HVAC is going to feel good. It's either the right amount of hot or right amount of cold. There's food, there's water to drink. There's things provided. There's a bathroom that's close by. Anything that can get in the way of the human experience that can like distance them from their music or their creativity is removed. So the lighting too, even. And um, it's just as much care and thought as I can put into it to make sure people need have what they need. And um, and then on the back end too, staying in communication, making sure I'm done in a timely manner, giving them deadlines for things like, hey, I will be mixing this on X date and you will have the first version of the mix by this time on that day and then doing it. A lot of guys will just produce stuff and then they won't mix it for four months. Artists don't like that. And if you're, if you're someone that does that, stop doing that. Give them a <laughs> oh, yeah. date. Brutal. You know what I mean? Like give them a date and then put it on your calendar. Be intentional about it. Plus two, the other thing and from a business standpoint, the longer you let that go, the less money you're making off the project. Get it done as fast as you can get it done. And And if you're in that mode where it's like, you just worked on it. You need a break. Take two days off. Come back to it if you don't have something else. But always try to be reasonable. Give them a reasonable amount of time to, um, you know, to have that stuff turned in. And you're not always going to meet those goals. You're going to fail too, you know. But like you try, eighty percent of the time you'll get there, you mm-hmm. know. So, anyways, yeah, I love that man. That, that it's you could tell that you've really thought through your process to make sure that that band is comfortable and that they have that experience that they want to relive again. And I think that that's really important. Yeah. And I think too, I think too, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I've learned all the ways not to do it. So I'm not just some guy off the street. That's like figured it out. It's taken years. I'm, you know, I'm going to be 42 in February. I've been going strong for 17 years and I want to go until my ears fall off. So at the end of the day, like these are just things you learn as you go. And, and hospitality is part of this world we're in. If if there's people there are people coming into your space. You're you're providing hospitality. Period. Mm-hmm. So, figure out how to do it. You know. Yep, love it. Do you do anything before a band comes in? Like, do you make them fill out any forms or anything like that to just like make sure that you're all on the same page as far as the vision goes? Um, I have, I have a deal memo. So, like, for booking, once we once we find dates, um, I have a contract that I send that, and it lays out essentially like what we're gonna do, how we're gonna do it, when it's gonna be done. And then some basic legal stuff, like um, if I'm not requesting royalties, then it's a work for hire. And I give them like kind of all of that stuff ahead of time. Because a lot of times if they end up like signing with management or lawyers, they want to know that they own the masters and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of take care of that on the front end. It's all, it's with indie bands, it's like you don't, they own their masters. You can't, it's dumb to try to own their masters. It's just silly. And and like it's, if, if, if you feel like you're losing out on money, then charge more. You know what I mean? Like charging more money because you're not going to make it in streaming. So I always try to work for hire agreement. I always try to make sure I say who's going to get the masters at the end. So everyone knows where they're going. 
they know what deliverables they're going to get. They know how the process is going to go, who's involved, whether my assistant's going to be involved. Um, they know the the cost and the layout. I take a deposit, and then once they pay the deposit, it's everything's put in motion. And um, then from there, we have a conversation, which is part of the pre-production, which is like taste, talk about the song. They're going to make tweaks to their demo. They let me know if they make any changes. They said, like, I'm in Logic now. Uh, I moved out of that Pro Tools world this year because I had a Mac M1, and I was like, I Pro Tools doesn't work yet. I, it was in mid-November. It wasn't working on the M1 at all. And I had 10 and then I had the monthly and it, then they raised the price on it. And I was like, I'm out of here. So yeah. And then they dropped with, their price because it was too much. Yeah. Then they dropped their price, <laughs> but I'm not going to go back. I still have yeah. 10. I can recall sessions on and stuff, but like at the end of the day, like it's still 10 doesn't work good. Even in, you know, if you want to stay remotely updated on OS and if you use any other softwares on your computer, it's like you, some of them require you to stay updated. So yeah. I'm at a point now where I'm just like, Apple makes the product that I need to do my job and they're going to keep it updated. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, and it's been good because the cost of entry is so affordable that pretty much all the kids are going to it. And a lot of my clients are younger people now, and I'm trying to stay that way. I don't, I want to be working with people that are making the more cutting edge music, the music that's like, you know, influencing culture and the scene and touring. Those those are the people I want to be working with. I learn from those people. Like I learn new things all the time. And, and so, um, logic was a way for them to share sessions. I get sessions, from demos and I can go in right into their demo and I can listen and make comments and all kinds of stuff. And it starts that dialogue and it kind of eliminates the need to get in a room for pre-production. Does that make sense? Yep. Absolutely. We don't have to, we don't have to do the Rick Rubin. Like I'm going to lay on the couch and call colors out to you in the background. More purple. I'm not going to do that. We don't have to do that. We can actually get right into the parts, listen to them, make comments, talk about them. Um, and I don't always share our thoughts. I just kind of ask questions and, before I shared thoughts because everyone, you know, gets, gets the right to communicate, I think in the room before I do. And I, sometimes I try to kind of withhold some things until I absolutely need to say stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty fluid. And if I, and if I, if they're booked out far enough, we get a really good conversation going that we'll schedule two really good conversations going through. And um, yeah, really, I really enjoy it. Actually, That's awesome. This way. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that that's such an important thing to do just very early on in the process. It's just like set those expectations for everyone. And I love that you, you know, you even go to that extent of establishing who owns the masters and all this kind of stuff that like some people don't even think about. But by just at least getting it out of the way early on, it just makes the process from that point on. Like they don't have to think about those things after the fact. It's just like in the moment they can just experience the experience and have fun and be creative Mm -hmm. and just get a, a great Great result out of it in the end. So I love well, that, man. Imagine this. So let's say you work with a band or an artist and you you have an amazing experience. They have an amazing experience. They're super happy with everything. And then everything's done and they go, all right, yeah, I got to sell my masters. Do I own them? And you're like, no, they're never going to hire you again because they're going <laughs> to yeah. feel just betrayed. And then you got to walk through the process of negotiating the buyout for the masters. And, and they're never going to call you again. If they have one negative experience that's that big, it doesn't matter how good their record was and how much success they have from it. They're never going to call you. And you have to just be thoughtful on that front end and make sure that like anything that could rise up, any kind of dragon or monster that could kind of come up on the back end is gone because you have to think long-term. If I like working with this person now, I'm going to like working with them in a year from now. So how do I make sure that I'm taking care of them so they don't feel any 
it's not trauma, but it's like stress or like, cause they're stressed out enough. They got to release a song. They got to make content videos. Now they got to do TikToks. They got to do all this stuff. And then it's like one more thing they got to do because you didn't think about it. But if you did, they wouldn't have to. And then they're, they're not mad. They're happy. They're stoked. Everything gets released. Everything goes off like it's supposed to. Yeah. You just don't want to be that, the guy that just pokes his head in and says, Oh, by the way. And it's like, Oh, you just, thanks. That's, Thanks yeah, for that. Just stabbed him in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it works both ways because, you know, having those conversations early protects you and it makes sure that any red flags that could come up, you notice right away. And so, yeah, yeah it, yep. it works for everyone and by doing that. Yeah, it does. I think, I think it's important to be thoughtful and to try to think, think through that stuff. And if you don't know it exists, you're not going to be, that's, that's the hard part, but you learn eventually. It'll, it'll happen enough times you're like, oh, I got to do this too. I'll add this to the deal memo or I got to explain this better. I got to communicate this better. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's just paying attention to a lot of those little details as you get that experience. And you're just, I think everyone listening to this, it's like you always want to be optimizing your system, whether it's your mixing process or whether it's how you deal with clients or, you know, any of that. It's like you always want to be evaluating where you're at right now and is there a better way? Is there something that you can do to just create a better experience for people? So, it, you know, I think, you know, taking it from that perspective of you don't need to necessarily have it all figured out right from the beginning, but you're, you're going to figure it out. You're going to just add one thing at a time and create that better yeah. experience. And you can ask questions too. If you're in a room with people that know more than you, ask questions. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to drive people nuts, so pick your time. But if you're in a room with a bunch of seasoned veteran, veterans working on a song and you have questions about stuff, just say, hey, can I talk to you another time about this? I'm really curious. Mentorship happens naturally if you let it and if you're thoughtful um, versus calling someone and say, hey, can you mentor me? It's like, uh. But like, hey, if you shoot me a text, I can give you an answer. You know what I mean? Like, so if you're a producer or you're like an engineer or you're a songwriter and, you know, just if you have a thought about how to, you know, most people are going to be generous you have a thought and you want to ask a question especially if you're just if you're cool if you're a good hang and you're not somebody that's like you still want to be too super formal with that stuff but just ask you know of course yeah the being being a good hang is definitely an important part of all of this yeah you know yeah yeah it's it's not like people are walking into a lab when they come to work with you they're they're just they're hanging out with a friend you got to look at it that way yes sir yeah Love it, man. Well, Jake, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, if people want to learn more about you or potentially even work with you, what's the best way for them to follow you? And so, if you're if you're on Instagram, it's uh, Jake Rye Mixing is my handle there, and then uh, JakeRye.com is my website. And there's like a playlist, and you know, there's some testimonials on there, and like a playlist you can listen to Spotify of songs I've worked on recently. And there's a text box we can message there, um, or you can DM me on Instagram. I answer those. Just add me as a friend first so it goes through. And then, uh, yeah, it's all it's all available there. So Awesome. Great, man. Well, thanks again. Yeah, man. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Jake Rye, and I thought there was a lot of great stuff there. And I really enjoyed what we were talking about at the end there where we were talking about how Jake likes to get all his contract stuff out of the way and just – Make sure that everyone has their expectations set. You know, everyone knows what they're getting into. They know what the timeline's going to look like. They know what's going to happen after the songs are done, after the mix is done. And I think that that really just makes everyone feel comfortable throughout that process. And there's no awkwardness to it, right? It just really gets rid of all of those looming questions or difficult conversations that you might have to have later. And by doing that, it just makes everyone focused on getting the job done and having fun throughout the entire process. So I love that Jake talked about that because I think it's super important for everyone who's working with other artists. 
It was also really cool to hear his process for using saturation and how he likes to commit to it early on by driving his preamps. And I think that that's a really cool thing, especially when it comes to drums. So if you haven't been doing that with your own mixes, definitely give that a shot because if you ever listen to Jake's recordings, they all sound really fat and big. And that's partially because of the way he's applying saturation to his tracks. So definitely make sure to try that out next time you go to record some drums. So I hope that you found that episode helpful. You got a lot of great tips out of it. I know I certainly did. And if you did and you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, what are you doing? Definitely make sure to subscribe. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. We've got tons of great episodes lined up ahead, so I definitely don't want you to miss out. Also, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you're looking for tips on how to create pro-sounding recordings from your home studio. If the process has felt challenging to you, if you're not quite sure what steps to be taking, what to be listening for, or you're looking for some advice on whether you're taking the right steps, because sometimes just getting validation is all you need to know that you're on the right path. If you're looking for help, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings and mixes from their home studios. And while you're there, one resource that I definitely want to point you to is a book that I wrote called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I break down the process of mixing step-by-step so that you know exactly what tools to be using, how to dial in your settings, what to be listening for, everything that you need to know in order to get the ideas that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers so that you can feel proud of the music that you're working on. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.